Coming up, actor Michael K. Williams of The Wire and The Night Of takes a very personal journey in a new documentary. And journalist and author Joy Press talks about how women are revolutionizing television. This is Pop Culture Confidential. everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a Spotify original. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Great to have you with us. Now, it's one of the most interesting industry books I've read this year. Author and journalist Joy Press's new book, Stealing the Show, is about women in television. She's interviewed some of the top showrunners and creators like Shonda Rhimes and Amy Sherman Palladino. And she writes about the successes and the challenges of making shows like Girls transparent and inside Amy Schumer. And how they have brought us some of the most radical and new representations of women on television. But first... Michael K. Williams is one of TV's best character actors. He starred on Boardwalk Empire and The Night Of, but many of us know him best as the iconic character Omar on The Wire, the gay Robin Hood of the hood who stole from the dealers and gave to the poor. He's said to be President Obama's favorite TV character. Now Williams has taken what he calls a very personal journey with a new documentary called Raised in the System, for which he is both executive producer and the correspondent. It's a very emotional and raw look at the American crisis that is juvenile incarceration. The rates for juvenile incarceration in the U.S. are the highest in the world, with around 49,000 kids in lockup daily. Williams visits prisons, schools, and his own nephew, Dominic Dupont, who was sentenced to 25 years in prison for second-degree murder at the age of 19. How long have you been in the system? It's since 12 to 17 now. Dang, I've been in it all early since about 14. I'm going on three years. I got 50 more, to be honest. I got 50 more years. Growing up in a violent neighborhood, I saw firsthand how the young people in my community ended up in the system. I've been in my own version of this. It ain't no place a child's supposed to grow up. We lost a population of young kids. We're helping these young folks believe and they have something to contribute to society. It's easier to talk to somebody who's been through the stuff that you've been through. I think you could break the mold in your family. I want to be the first one to grow up and not go to prison. I got to talk to Mr. Williams about the documentary and his other projects while he was in Cannes as a guest at the inaugural TV festival, Cannes Series. Mr. Williams, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, you've said that the documentary Raised in the System is one of your most personal and life-changing projects. Why is this so personal for you? Uh, because, you know... Um, Mass incarceration has affected me, well, my, my family members and friends my entire life. And um, I reached a point in my career and in my life where, you know, I took a look at, at patterns and situations and things just weren't adding up. And when I took it to the producer's advice, they, um, they saw the bigger picture. What happens to a kid who's incarcerated at an early age in an adult system? A couple of things happen. If you don't have finances to uh, to proper lawyer, lawyering and and bail money, you, you get you get you get completely sucked under, and and in the process of being sucked under, there is nothing that's in place 
in the correctional facility that speaks to the fact that a, a, a person is still an adolescent. You know, there's there's no, you know, a lot of these kids are uh, at risk because of mental health issues, um, abuse, whether it be physical or sexual, or just lack of family um, um, uh, interaction, you know, like a, a healthy, normal family structure. So they go into the system, you know, severely damaged and, 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 and traumatized. And then on top of that, they're just, they're at the most awkward um, period in anyone's life, which is called adolescence. And it's not about, you know, why did they do, why did they make a bad choice or make a mistake? It was a matter of when. And then we, we punish that with um, adult, adult-like uh, uh, punishment it, and expect them to flourish and come out and be a, pro- a productive member of society with no legs to stand on. You know, so, so you know, we need to take a look at when our, our young people make bad choices that, that break the law, they need to be held accountable for it true Mm -hmm. and they also need to be put in a situation where they are still allowed to grow and nourish you know complete with cognitive skill um, of courses of trauma counseling so that when they are released back into society you know some sort of training whether it be education or 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 skill training so that when they come back into society they have a link to stand on and right now that's not in play That's what's so gripping is that it seems like you really don't get a second chance in the system, even if you do something at such a young age as 12, 13, 14. Right. We are holding people, we are holding young people responsible for the rest of their lives for one bad decision they made at 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. You know, and then, you know, there's there's another thing that, you know, we we need to take a look at is um, the private, the privatization of prisons. You know, um, prison has become uh, a big business in America. Uh, you have all these private prisons popping up, and you know, you have to look at it like if you and I were were, were investors or, or builders, and we build a condominium in the city, we're going to want to fill those units. It is the same mentality with prisons. You know, these private owners they build these prisons, and they got to fill those jail cells, and you know, they use at-risk youth which is the, the main you know, watering hole to get people, you know, into these into these facilities with no type of um, no type of, of of acknowledgement that they are still young people. Right. To make money. It's all it, it from what from what where I stand, it looks like it's just all to make money. Right. One of the things that's very personal in the doc is that you meet your nephew, Dominic DuPont. Tell me a little bit about his story. Uh, my nephew Dominic was a very decent is and was a very decent young man. He was in Bible college. He worked. He, um, he helped take care of his family. Um, and one day, his uh, his twin brother was being accosted by a gang of of young men over a female. Right? Because we've all heard that story before: young boys fighting over a girl. Um, and my nephew went to defend his twin brother, um, which again. Not brain surgery here. That's, that's what kids do. We, def- we defend our family. That's what anybody would do. They would defend their family. The only difference is Dominic had, as an ad- as an adolescent youth, he had way too much access to illegal firearms, as we all do in a community like where I come from. And and that's the issue we need to speak to as well. You know, um, 
Had Dominic not had that access to that illegal firearm that, that plagues our streets in the communities where I come from, that would have been a fist fight at best, a couple of bumps and bruises, and everybody would have lived to go home and talk about it the next day. Because of, because of all the illegal firearms that are in my community, you know, bad decisions. We have way too much access to tools to act to, to, to execute our already bad decisions, you know, and that's what happened to my nephew, Dominic. And so he was incarcerated for how long? Dominic spent 20 years, seven months, and 50 days in a maximum security prison. And so he just got out because we see that in the documentary. So I'm, 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 and what does he want to do with his life? Well, before we before we go there, um, I would like to state he was clemenced by Governor Cuomo. He didn't just get out. He was he was he was granted clemency by Governor Cuomo, not because of anything that had to do with me. It was because it was strictly on his merit. This this man went into prison as a boy in a maximum security prison and, and did twenty hard years with not one incident, not one ticket, not one of trouble. He never got into any, any, any kind of like bad thing. I don't know anybody in the, in, in, in the outside world that can say in 20 years, I've never gotten anything as much as a speeding ticket. Oh, right. Not one thing. And not only did he not, did he not get in trouble, he, he submerged himself in all the proper programming that would, um, give him a leg to stand on. He got his education in there. He started to counsel and um, get proper counseling. He went into all the programs that he needed to go into to show that he was willing to, to become a, a, a productive member of society. He mentored young men in there. He started the HIV AIDS awareness program in there, mentored young men that came in after him with their anger issues. And his leg, and he's doing the same thing now in the world that he was doing in there, helping people, being the best person he can be and, and putting a positive footprint in the universe. And he, and he works with me now. We started my um, organization. Our organization is called MKW, which stands for Making Kids Win. And um, he's going to be the face of it. And we're going to we're going to continue the good work out here and on the other side of the world. That's incredible. Um, lots of the people talk about sort of, I let the streets take me, but a few have role models that they speak of. What about yourself? Who were your role models growing up? You know, um, number number one was my mom. Uh, she uh, is a, and she was and still is a driving force in my life. Um, she never gave up on me. And, She's by far number one, my, my role model. And, and um, I owe a lot of my success um, to the man that I am today, not about Hollywood, but the man that I am today, I owe a lot of that to um, my upbringing and um, mother's love and her consistency in my life. And how about something like dance? You were a young dancer. How important was that sort of in finding your way? Uh, well, the arts period was was. was imperative for me to find I, I I can't um tell you how grateful I am for having the arts in my life uh, when I when I became a dancer um I was just you know getting my life together I was um coming out of adolescence I was a young man young 20s and um I was trying to find myself and get it together as we say I was in school and um in college and I um was working for Pfizer pharmaceuticals and I just saw a music video, a Janet Jackson music video, and decided that I wanted to become a dancer. And um, it was a turbulent road in the beginning. Um, but 
And I, you know, I got blessed and started working. And, you know, the dance, the process of going into a room with a group of strangers and creating something in unison that we could, you know, put on stage, that 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 process of creating, it was um it was a magical moment for me. I loved everything about the process of creating art and um that captured my attention and it held me. And up until that point, I had never been really interested in anything in life except, you know, just partying and, and, and doing doing drugs. And um the arts, you know, and particularly dance, um gave me something to uh, to gravitate to. And then shortly thereafter, the late great Tupac Shakur, he um changed the, the trajectory of my of my life forever when he had the um his producers and director of a film that he was doing in New York City, he had them come look for me because he saw a Polaroid picture and he liked my look. He saw the scar and thought that I was a, a candidate for a role in this, in this film that he was doing. And the rest is history. Uh, I can't wait to see you in, in a role dancing. I hope you have something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, I know that this you were incredible at it. Became a big star, and people found. Um, but we haven't seen you n- lately. No, no, it's been a minute since I've danced, and I would, I would welcome the opportunity gladly. Uh, if the right role came along, whether it be on on film or on stage, I would welcome. I think the it's going to happen. But um, you have often showcased um, the issues that you you do in your documentaries now in the roles you've taken, from Omar to your character in The Night of, who is a prisoner at Rikers Island. When you meet people in the system and you and you talk to these um, young kids, has Omar, for example, who was such a transformative character, made a difference to people? No, ma'am. Uh, the, the young no, the young people that I'm speaking to in this documentary, you have to remember they're they're, they're 15, 16 years old. The Wire is 15, 16 years old. These kids have no clue. And honestly, there's so much going on in their lives. They don't care. You know, and why should why should they care? They're they're living a real live wire. So um, I walked in there. They they knew that I, I guess, for lack of a better term, that I was somebody. Um, you know, I had a crew of cameramen walking behind me into their facility. They knew, okay, something's up, but they were unimpressed, and they and they should have been. And they they took me, they took me on the energy and the conversation that I brought into their presence, and that's what they based their assumption of me on. And I, I would dare I say that I um, I think I walked out of there with their respect and admiration, not based on what I do for a living, but what I showed them, the character of my of the man that I am in, in our conversation, how I I looked for ways to um, to have uh, things in common, I guess, with them. Like what what do we share in common? The same pain, and I, I shared my mistakes that I made, and we had a real life conversation. It wasn't about not your Hollywood career. No, I don't. We, I don't play that. They, they don't need that, and that's not what I'm there for. But you were a role model yourself while you were making The Wire, because I understand that that you found um, Snoop. Yeah, right? you know, it, yeah, you know, it's found and, and role model. Those are very um, strong words. I, I bumped into her at a, at a at a local bar in Baltimore, trying to beat Last Call. Honestly speaking, you know, it was was not scouting talent. I was, in, you know, inebriated to say the least. <laughs> and I saw her standing there, and I, and for the love of God, I couldn't figure out if she was a little boy 
<laughs> or grown woman. And she just was so naturally androgynous, and I found her so striking and beautiful. Whatever she, whatever it was, I just this this person is just beautiful. And um, it, she struck a conversation, and she knew who I was because the, the wire was the word about the wire was already buzzing in town. And, and um, she came up and said, you know, I heard about you in the show, and I want to say props to you. And I just, I just gave her my, I just gave her my number and my name. I said, please, will you call me on Monday morning? I think it was like a Saturday night. Would you please call me Monday morning? And she trusted me. Because she her could have background been like this. was, it was tough. I mean, that's what you. Her know. background was very tough, mm-hmm. and she didn't, she didn't need. Um, there was nothing that I could present her at two o'clock in the morning, drunk in a nightclub that would have, would have piqued her interest. I, I, I was, I like to say she found me, she trusted me, you know, um, you know, I, I, and this strange man walks up to her in a bar and said, give her his number, a lesbian said, call me on Monday. Really? Um, it was a little, little odd. And so, but she trusted, she trusted the, the process. She trusted me. She trusted her gut and she called me on Monday. And, um, has she not, gave me the chance to be in her life we would not be talking about her so so um i you know to say because i found her think, what do you think would have happened to her um she probably would have ended up back in the system recidivism is very high in in my community with um people who come out out of, out of the system who don't have proper legs to stand on and with all the trauma that she had been through being born to, to crack addicted parents um you know, being raised in the foster care. She had, thank God, she had a good um, foster care parents that, that, that really nurtured her the best that they could. But East Baltimore was still a hard place to grow up. And those, those, those parents were very elderly. And there was a high chance had she and I not crossed paths, she would have gone back into this business. Well, that's amazing. I mean, sometimes those meetings and and as you were saying before, the arts um, really can give you another trajectory. I just have to ask you about the incredible little boy that you meet in the school. I think it's in New Jersey. Um, Yes, Michael. Right, Michael. He talks about that he wants to be the first in his family not to go to prison. He looks like he's eight or nine years old. Um, Do you keep contact with him? Yes, I do. We keep in very close contact. Um, How is he, he doing? He's doing. He's he's doing okay. He's still in foster care, and he's still one decision away from screwing up his life. He's still he's not out of the woods yet, so to speak. Um, Newark is a very very uh, turbulent neighborhood, um, and he's still there. He's still in the community. He's still in foster care, but he has a lot of love and support from from his school and his teachers and. Um, now that um, I've exposed him to the world, he's going to have a lot of aunties and uncles uh, yeah. making sure that he's okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, trust me, it's already happening. Okay. He's, he's been adopted about 15 times already. Oh, because he's amazing. That's great. Yeah, he's doing well. But lastly, sort of like for someone like Michael, um, what do you see as sort of the bigger picture solution in terms of politics, um, um, this current administration? What can we do in terms of criminal justice reform to help someone like Michael, who is eight, nine years old, as both his parents have been in prison, who seems to be heading straight into the system that you show? Uh, wow, that, that's a loaded question. And um, I, I can't really speak to what um, Mr. Trump or his administration should be doing. I, I, I don't really want to go down that road, but uh, 
what I what I can say is I know what I can be doing, and I know what people that feel like me and people that come from the community that I come from, I know what we could be doing as a community. And it's about mentorship. You know, if the more the more positive people from our community, people that have walked, made bad choices in their lives, like myself, and who want to give back to the community, I think it's up, it's time for us to step up and be mentors in a young man's life like Michael and to, to show him the right way and to show him and to tell him from experience what the wrong path will bring. And I think that's where my power is and, and um, I keep it there. But if we, if we were to talk about any type of, of laws that I would, I would, um, if I were to have a chance to speak to Mr. Trump, I would ask him until we figure out how we could, um, get better gun laws. I would love to see something like a, a national gun database. You know, I'm not saying raise the age limit. I'm not saying do mental background checks. What I am saying is buy as many guns as you want. What I am saying is be responsible for them. There, there, there comes a time in a gun's life where it goes from being legal to illegal. And normally when it turns illegal, it ends up on my city streets in, in Brooklyn, where I come from, where adolescent kids and at-risk youth like my nephew, like Michael, get have way too much access to those guns to do stupid things, right? So if I were to speak to any political laws, I would suggest that as a my little brain fart, I guess. Um, lastly, before I let you go, what do you have any new projects coming up in terms of TV series or film? Um, no, ma'am, not right now. I'm just uh, really excited about, uh, I have a, I have a show right now that's running on the Sundance channel. It's called Hap and Leonard. Uh, my co-star, um, um, right. James Pierrevoy. We're in our third season and it's airing right now. Um, that's pretty much on that's all that's on the plate. Mr. Williams, thank you so much for taking your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your documentary work. Thank you as well. Have a great day. Thank you to Mr. Michael K. Williams. Raised in the System is out now on Vice and HBO. And you can get information on the Con Series TV Festival at conseries.com. Now, I'm very happy to have with me journalist Joy Press. In her new book, Stealing the Show, we meet some of the creators, writers, and the shows that have revolutionized depictions of the contemporary woman in pop culture. She started writing the book in 2015, a particularly interesting year for women in and on television. I started by asking her what shows and who was revolutionizing TV that year. You had shows like Jill Soloway's Transparent and Orange is the New Black and Inside Amy Schumer, you know, all of which were sort of getting, uh, you know, Emmy Award and Golden Globe Award attention. And it started to kick off a kind of new torrent of, of series on television, again, created by women with sort of very female-centric um, storylines and, and characters. You talk about many interesting examples in the book about controversial plot lines involving female characters and situations. What are some of the scenarios that caused the most uproar, a few examples through the decades? All the way through kind of TV history, there were kind of, you know, television executives telling creators, no, we don't want to see women doing that. And what was that type of thing? You know, anything that was described as kind of unlikable, too aggressive, mm -hmm. too sexual, 
Um, you know, for a long time, I mean, you know, a, a single woman, um, you know, couldn't be too sexy. Didn't, I mean, you couldn't necessarily be divorced early on. I think in the Mary Tyler Moore show, they really didn't want her to her character to be divorced. Um, and so, you know, when you, I start my book with, um, uh, the show Murphy Brown and Murphy Brown and Roseanne were two shows that were sort of went on to be kind of huge all over the world. And they started within a month of each other in 1988. And, and both of those shows, you know, ran up against the, the same kinds of problems with Diane English, who created the show Murphy Brown said, you know, she was constantly hearing the word unlikable mm-hmm. that, you know, this was too unlikable that these care, these female characters weren't relatable enough. People wouldn't you know, wouldn't understand a character who was so forthright or aggressive or fierce, um, angry. I mean, Murphy Brown, you know, was often angry for good reason. She was a, a, a television investigative journalist and she was going after, you know, kind of corrupt politicians and, and, you know, corporate bad guys. And, you know, she was this, this middle-aged single woman who was uh, coming back from rehab. That was the way Diane English, the creator initially wrote her. And she was a real troublemaker. She had clearly been kicked out of the white house in the past. And when the network kind of looked at the original script, they said, well, could she be younger? They wanted a younger actress who was kind of a sexy, like bombshell type actress. And they didn't want her to be coming back from rehab. They thought that, you know, alcoholism was sort of too disturbing in a, in a a female character. They wanted her to be coming back from a spa. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) and the only reason that it got on the air as it did was because there was a writer's strike in America and, and that meant that uh, the script as written could not be touched until after the strike was over. So they had to decide, do we want to take it as written and get the show on the air or do we want to see how long the strike takes? So they put it on the air as what, you know, as Diane English had written it with this, you know, middle aged, um, very distinguished actress, Candace Bergen, um, you know, and the character coming back from rehab. And, and of course, it, you know, ended up being a, a huge success all over the world and really kind of paved a path for, for a certain kind of female character. One writer strike that really um, paved the way for all of us, right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. exactly. Um, but it's interesting because what you're saying in terms of, of character and plot really mirrors a lot of the things your interviewees, the creators themselves are saying that they were, many of them have been labeled difficult, lost their job because of that that male showrunners can be far more aggressive, to put it mildly. Um, What are some of the ways that the creators you've talked to have dealt with this type of uh, situations in the writer's room and on their sets? A lot of those women, certainly some of the women in my book, have just battled through it. Um, It's their personality. And, you know, certainly somebody like Amy Sherman Palladino um, who created Gilmore Girls and and now uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, you know, basically just said at one point she was getting calls from, you know, executives constantly harassing her about things. And, and she just said, you know, look, you're not my mother. So either stop calling me or fire me, you know, one or the other. So, you know, and that certainly um, is a, a, a kind of one way to one way to work with it. Many of these 
women came through the ranks being the only woman in the writer's room or one of two women in the writer's room. And so, you know, if you are the only one, it's strange. Your, your being a woman becomes a big deal. And so, you know, they wanted to create crew and, and writer's rooms where there were lots of women, lots of different kinds of voices so that it doesn't become strange to, you know, to, to be a woman. It's, you're just a person. I mean, that's really what they want, right? It's to have a, to have a world where you're, you know, you don't actually have to pay so much attention to being a woman. You're just a, you're just a person who's doing a good job. Right. Uh, one of the fascinating chapter in the book, I think, is about Shonda Rhimes, so really a single mom who went to create I mean, it's it's definitely the best nickname, the Shonda Land, because um, I don't <laughs> think there's any even male showrunners who've had so many shows in production as she has. What has she sort of done for television? Shonda Rhimes is a really exceptional figure. And as you said, I mean, she has created this enormous organization, um, you know, both in terms of shows that she is creating and writing and also shows that she's producing for, you know, other writers in, in her realm. And I think she really just went, went forward and, and wanted to create a world number one behind the scenes and in front of the camera that was diverse, that, you know, looked more like the world as she knew it. And as we know it, you know, and she also took, all kinds of formats um, for television, you know, the, the hospital show, the, the law show. You know, she's taken all of these very popular formats and, you know, again, kind of introduced a, a kind of diversity to them and, and not kind of worried about, uh, you know, the fact that they were might appeal more, more to, to women to men. Right, right. Really, really, you know, created these incredibly strong female characters and, and not just strong, but like interesting and weird and complex, um, ambitious female characters that very much, um, you know, took something from her own, um, you know, artistic vision and, and ambition. One of the uh, female creators and writers that seems to just get so much vitriol in is, is Lena Dunham. Why do you think she has been such a polarizing figure? You know, somebody asked me, um, you know, why, why do we hate Lena Dunham so much? And I don't particularly, I don't hate Lena Dunham, but I think that Girls is an art house TV series. It is not for everyone. It is a, a very provocative show. I think it opened all kinds of new doors for women, for female characters in terms of narrative. I think it's a really fascinating show. It pushes a lot of buttons. And, you know, it also sort of speaks to the, the way that we kind of want female characters to be role models we want female characters to stand in for us. And the character that Lena Dunham created in Girls is not a role model. She's a really problematic character who is constantly shooting herself in the foot. She has all kinds of privilege and she, you know, whines about it. Um, you know, she ends up in all kinds of situations where you just want to kind of shake her. And... To me, that makes for fantastic, provocative television and really interesting. I mean, it's constantly sort of 
you know, making us think and asking us questions and making us cringe. And honestly, I don't think that there are male characters who do that and and don't get the kind of vitriol that um, Lena Dunham does. So, I, you know, I just I feel like there are so many ways to be a man in pop culture. I mean, there are a million different characters, right? So we don't expect Tony Soprano or Walter White from Breaking Bad to stand in for us. We might feel something vicariously through them. And it's very appealing. That liberation is very appealing in the male character. And see these different things in a female character, it's disturbing. And and partly, you know, I think that's one of the things that some of the shows in my book, including, you know, Girls and, you know, Amy Schumer, Broad City, um, you know, a, a lot of these shows are sort of opening up and widening the kind of ways that you can be a woman or that you can live vicariously. There's a, the friendship aspect on these shows between women that we haven't seen in, in the way both in Broad City and in Girls and also, but also with Amy Schumer, all this body humor, which I think is very liberating for us that hasn't been around all that much, right? Yes, and I, but I think that it's, again, it's very, I mean, people were very upset by the idea that Lena Dunham was naked, you know, that she's yeah. showing her body naked or, you know, with Mindy Kaling, who is, you know, another uh, creator who's in her own show, you know, that she really walked through the world as if she, you know, was was confident and beautiful and, you know, perfect, even though some people felt she had an imperfect body. We judge women in such extreme ways and that ends up kind of, you know, bouncing off of these um, TV shows and these characters. One thing I had forgotten that uh, I remembered when I was reading your book was this thing that Christopher Hitchens wrote that women weren't funny. When was this and what was the story behind it? December of 2006, Christopher Hitchens um, Fair magazine proposing uh, the idea that women weren't funny. And, you know, it was such a strange idea because it was right uh, at the time that Tina Fey was sort of coming into her own. Um, she had been the first female writer on SNL, for God's sake. The, the first lead, yeah, yes, the first head writer. Head writer. Right. And, and was really kind of ushering in this, this renaissance of women on SNL, um, on Saturday Night Live. And you know, very shortly would would create 30 Rock, which I think, you know, was just a a, a huge uh, deal in terms of um, television comedy, really kind of created a new kind of TV show. So, you know, it was such a strange idea. uh, And of course, you know, Hitchens isn't isn't around to argue with us about it anymore. But, you know, I mean, it seemed to me that really, at the end of the day, his his rule that, you know, men um, didn't want women to be funny because they wanted women to be the audience. <laughs> oh, okay, that was his whole point. <laughs> well, no, I mean that's my point. Right, I, right. I think you know his his he he sort of had this this long idea that um, you know it it was women were had to be mothers, and so women were um, basically destined to be the designated grown-ups, and you know that so much humor came out of you know. Um, bodily humor and, and, you know, bodily processes and that, that, you know, women had to basically be the scolds and the, and the grownups, which of course has been disproven (laughs) by the the latest wave of, um, you know, definitely, uh, you know, Amy Schumer and 
Yes. Broad City. Right, yes. Right, right. Yes. And, you know, SNL at that time was disproving it. So I think we can definitively say uh, that he was wrong. Yes, I think so, too. Um, finally, um, you were saying when you started your book in, in 2015, this was a big year for TV, big year for women. But between the, the starting of your book and now, it's also been some pretty crazy stuff with uh, Trump and uh, pussy grabbing and Weinstein and, of course, very positive things of women being able to come out more. But how has all this shaped your writing? Well, it was a very weird thing to um, to start the book kind of thinking that we might have a female president in the United States and and then, you know, to end up in this uh, scenario where we were very much in a backlash and, you know, we had President Trump and, all, as you say, the kind of pussy grabbing. So, you know, I, I kind of had to rethink the ending of my book a little bit. And, and it sort of occurred to me that a lot of the shows, the recent shows that I'm talking about in the book, shows like Girls and Transparent and, um, you know, Orange is the New Black. I mean, in some ways, these are very much part of the, you know, 2017, 2018 culture wars. These are shows that um, are very much representing uh, a kind of attack on the sort of family values, conservative vision of, of America. So, you know, in a way it makes the stakes in terms of television higher. And in terms of the second part of your question, I mean, the Me Too conversation happened kind of after I finished my book. And and I think it's really an amazing moment. And I hope that it will sort of further the conversation and make it a a lot deeper. I, I think it's made a lot of people, male and female, aware of things that we all pushed to the side, some things that were very blatant and some things that were very, very subtle. And I have no doubt that we will start to see those things percolate on television, you know, um, and I'm hoping that it will um, it will have effect in terms of behind the scenes. Certainly, you know, people are much more aware of the inequality and the kind of issues that women are dealing with. And, you know, and I have to hope that that is going to, um, that's going to change things. Well, on that very hopeful note, thank you so much, Joy, for talking to me and for your book. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks. That was fun. Thank you so much to Joy Press. Her book, Stealing the Show, is available now. And thank you so much for listening to us here on Pop Culture Confidential. Follow us on Twitter at Pod Pop Culture and Instagram, Pop Culture Confidential. And make sure to catch us next week, only on Spotify. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, 
or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life. We've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.